Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am coming to you from New York City. We are joined today by an excellent group uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I think, we have Stephen Walter. Are you in Cambridge, Massachusetts? Close enough. Close enough. Well, that's 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 good. And we have joining us, well, I don't know, usually he's in Florida, but I think he's in Washington right now, General Mark Hurtling. Are you in Washington? I am, and that's uh, surprising as much for me as it is for you probably, David. Uh, well, yeah, I'm sorry not to be there. Uh, <laughs> and we also have uh, Joyce Karam, who's a columnist for uh, The National and who is an adjunct professor at George Washington University. Welcome, Joyce. Hi, David. Uh, So, you know, we thought we would talk today about what has transpired over the past several days uh, with uh, President Trump and President Erdogan, the Turkish uh, invasion of uh, Syria and its consequences for the region. Um, But but let me start with... uh, with Joyce, uh, with, you know, this podcast airs over several days, so we have to be about hooking it to any particular moment. But, you know, as, as w- 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 if you were going to provide an overview as to where we are um, mm-hmm. in a snapshot, tell, t- t- tell, us, tell us where you think we are. Uh, so at the moment, uh, we see Assad forces pushing north uh, and east of the country, being deployed in towns like uh, Kamushli, uh, Raqqa, Hasaka, and Ras Al-Ain. Uh, these towns uh, were held by the Kurdish uh, forces, but they're now giving them up after their deal uh, with Damascus. So that's on uh, the Syrian uh, front. Uh, with the U.S., uh, they're preparing to withdraw uh, their troops after Trump's uh, decision, Uh, They're looking for safe uh, exits uh, from the country. We are also told that U.S. sanctions uh, may come on Turkey uh, this week. Uh, Russia, of course, is using its uh, rising influence in Syria and regionally uh, to plan uh, the road ahead. Uh, Turkey is still uh, carrying its operations in some towns, but with the regime uh, deploying north, it is unclear what will uh, the scope of uh, its incursion be. Uh, when you when you look at it regionally or you talk to the Europeans, uh, there is definitely a sense of confusion around the U.S. decision-making process and how uh, quickly uh, the White House decided uh, to leave Uh, There is anxiety uh, when you talk to these diplomats of how the U.S. wavered in its commitment uh, to the SDF, uh, David, and what it may mean uh, for the fight against ISIS. Okay. Now, David um, Sanger, you had a uh, front page story in the New York Times today, uh, which in an email exchange you explained to me was a Q head. 
And I, I said, because I'm a journalism professional, what's a Q-head? So what, what's a Q-head, David? Um, a Q-head is a, um, a news analysis. And uh, it is an uh, old times tradition that uh, it is named by the type of headline from the print paper. Remember the print paper, David, when yeah. you were a young man, they used to drop this on your doorstep? It was a long time ago. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, but this so, was a news so, analysis that tried to ask the question, how is it that President Trump, in the matter of seven days, managed to help get us from a system that worked to, uh, you know, uneasily a, a U.S. presence that uh, seemed to um, uh, at least hold the peace to a situation now of complete carnage, of advantage for the Russians, of advantage for the Iranians, of advantage for Bashar Assad, and significant advantage for ISIS. Uh, and the answer is, this is an administration that has so little process underway in sort of examining the, the uh, effects of potential effects of future decisions that he pretty much ignored the advice that he was getting from the Pentagon and from the State Department and others. Now, before we go on to Mark, one of the things I thought was kind of interesting in your piece um, was that you, you, you tried to look for an analogous situation in history where something went uh, wrong so quickly for the U.S. And you went all the way back to the early 50s. And I just I thought it was a good example. So maybe you could provide it to us. So the, the, the example comes from January 1950, um, when uh, Dean Acheson, then the Secretary of State, gave a speech at the uh, press club in Washington where he was laying out what were American interests in Asia. And he described an area of interest that ran from the Ryukyu Islands, which are southern, southern Japan uh, area, down through the Philippines and left out the Korean Peninsula. Now, there's two weeks later, Stalin signed off on Kim Il-sung's um, decision to uh, go invade South Korea, the beginning of the Korean War. And there's been a historical debate ever since about whether the Atchison omission allowed that to happen. Um, certainly, it was not what Washington intended. Th no analogy is perfect, and this one is imperfect because in this case, President Trump's made pretty clear over uh, the course of the past two and a half years that he wants all troops out. And he doesn't really distinguish very much between endless wars, that is, wars where you're taking casualties, and a uh, military presence of the kind we had along the border where we were, had no casualties but were serving a sort of peacekeeping uh, kind of role. So, Mark, um, you know, looking at it from a military perspective, uh, it's shocking on, on, on multiple levels, whether it's the level of president not taking advice or the level of the president abandoning an ally or the level of the president doing something that's likely to strengthen an adversary like ISIS or um, Assad or Iran. Um, and one of the things that struck me is that a number of your colleagues who were in the military as you were uh, have been extremely outspoken and critical. Now, I can't include in that list uh, a former Secretary of Defense Mattis, but John Allen at Brookings and others 
uh, have have been extremely uh, critical. And I'm wondering why you think this decision produces such a strong reaction in career military officers. Well, yeah, and I'd add to your list of those who have uh, spoken out, uh, General retired, recently retired General Joe Botel, who was the CENTCOM commander. Uh, it was good that John Allen spoke out, although he has been known to be outspoken on these kinds of things. But Joe Botel, remember, from a historical perspective, was the one who was tasked with the impossible mission of putting together the force that would beat ISIS about four or five years ago. And no one thought he could do it. I remember all the media chirping about the fact that there's no way this could happen. We have no one on the ground now. The intelligence collection would be impossible. How do you form an alliance from a bunch of crazy gangs and, and uh, jihadists in the deserts and bring the Kurds in as well? And Joe did it. And since he's retired just a few months ago, Joe has been Joe Votel has been very outspoken about all of this. But the thing that's most troubling to me uh, is the fact that I'm looking at it from the other side and what's occurred over the last several days. And, and that's as a, a preliminary to say operational momentum of an attacking force does not come without massive planning and coordination. And why I say that is because it seems that the Turks, along with the Russians and the Syrians, had what kind of targets they wanted to hit, where their objectives were, and their plan of maneuver, which they have executed rather efficiently, even though it's been against a uh, uh, somewhat dysfunctional defending force. And even the fact that the Turks were able to persuade American and Kurdish forces to disestablish their, their defensive positions and declare that nothing would ever happen, which is now what the Kurds are the most upset about because they were led into this by their American counterparts who believed that they were going to be able to defend. So you have uh, one army, the Turkish army on one side, along with Russia and Syria, seemingly knowing exactly what was going to happen and planning for it with extreme precision. On the other side, uh, if you take a look at the United States, uh, the military of the United States, our European allies, NATO, uh, there seems to be a complete lack of international coordination and cooperation, primarily because this was unexpected. It, it was a surprise attack and all, uh, you know, even though we knew uh, Erdogan wanted to do this, the attack itself was an extreme surprise, I think, for most of the military. Having said that, though, I'm going back to Joe Votel, General Joe Votel, who's, who has been troubled by what he's seen as somewhat the pushback of the successes gained in northern Syria by a, a very diverse and thrown together coalition force. So um, that's disturbing. Uh, Steve, as you look at it, you know, you, you had an article which I recommend everybody read in Foreign Policy um, a few, few days back talking about how, how you, know, you know, impeachment is likely like to affect Trump's foreign policy. Um, but how do you view it? How do you view this from a strategic perspective? Uh, well, it, it certainly, I mean, starting with the first point, I mean, I, the piece I, I wrote on Trump is that I didn't think impeachment, in fact, was going to affect his foreign policy. It's inept up until now, and it will continue to be inept uh, while he's being impeached. 
I have some reservations on that or some caveats to that. Uh, I have a somewhat different view, I guess, of the situation in Syria. Uh, you know, I think this is one of these cases, and there are others, where Trump at some crude level has kind of the right instincts and then proceeds to pursue them in the worst possible way. So he doesn't necessarily achieve what he wants to achieve, and he leaves a lot of broken crockery uh, around in doing it. And let me just unpack that a little bit. Um, I think the situation in northern Syria was untenable over the longer term. Uh, a Kurdish enclave there was not going to be a permanent part of the architecture of the region. Uh, we were not willing to support the creation of an independent Kurdish state. So eventually they were going to have to be part of one of the states uh, in the region. Um, the Turks, uh, rightly or wrongly, have uh, seen the Kurds as an existential threat for a variety of historical reasons uh, there. And as long as the, the enclave was there, and as long as Assad uh, could not consolidate his position in the rest of Syria, he had to keep working with Iran and Russia and Hezbollah uh, and others. I might add that this was not really a long-term solution to the problem of ISIS resurgent. Keeping them in prison camps creates an absolutely wonderful breeding ground for sort of further radicalization. So the United States should have been working under Trump to come up with a political and diplomatic solution. And for the most part, we weren't. Uh, to, and I, my view is to get the Russians, Iran, Hezbollah out and to mollify the Turks, uh, you were ultimately going to have to live with letting Assad regain power uh, in the north. He ends up having to deal with ISIS, which is a mortal enemy for him. The Turks don't like Assad very much, but they prefer him to the Kurds. The Israelis don't like Assad, but they can work with him and would like uh, Iran out. This is an awful outcome, given that Assad is a war criminal, but it's not clear to me uh, that there's a better one. We should have been working with Russia, Iran, and Turkey to develop that solution. But of course, we can't do that for a variety of other reasons. So we're at odds with Russia over Ukraine. We're waging an economic war with Iran. Uh, again, we think Assad is a war criminal. Uh, so the alternative was simply leaving American troops up there for a long time. But that was never going to last. So again, I think Trump's desire to bring that situation to an end is understandable. Uh, unfortunately, with no planning, with no coordination, and essentially just handing uh, this to the Turks, he's managed to make a bad situation worse. So, Joyce, in, 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 in terms of that bad situation, the people who are going to have it the worst are going to be the Kurds. Now, the Kurds have had a, uh, a very tough history. Um, uh, decades ago, um, the Turks massacred the Kurds prior to there even being a real organized separatist movement. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein used uh, 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 chemical weapons against the Kurds, killed 5,000 people in a Kurdish town, did so, by the way, with the tacit knowledge and, and support of the United States um, uh, in early 1988. Uh, uh, and it looks like the situation for the Kurds is going to change. They were shocked uh, at, at the abandonment of the U.S., and they now seem to be in conversations uh, with the Assad regime seeking their protection. What do you think the future is for the Kurds? Uh, no, good question, David. Uh, many Kurds feel, many uh, in the Kurdish minority feel this is another 1988 uh, moment. Uh, they were pushed into this. They didn't have uh, uh, a choice. They were not uh, consulted, uh, I think, from, um, I'm not sure if it's David Sanger's piece, but some, uh, you know, 
uh, learned it over Twitter. Uh, uh, what's happening? So uh, it's 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 not the withdrawal itself; it's the mechanism that it was uh, uh, carried out. You almost, uh, if you were reporting on that story for the last week, you almost felt uh, there are two uh, U.S. governments. Uh, one that tells you at the beginning of the Turkish uh, operation uh, that this is not a beginning uh, of uh, a pullout. When, when they moved the observation uh, posts. And then uh, days later, uh, you just learn that the U.S. is, uh, in fact, uh, withdrawing. So uh, for, uh, for the, not just for the Kurdish uh, minority in the region, but I think for others uh, who are looking uh, for the U.S. Uh, to protect them, uh, there's a big lesson here. There is a big signal uh, that maybe, uh, you know, relying on, on somebody like uh, Russia is, is more uh, reliable. Uh, the Kurds are more likely now to, uh, to engage more with Russia, to engage uh, with Assad to protect themselves. Um, and their dream, their, their vision of an autonomous region uh, may be over. Uh, David, there there was a backlash against this in the United States, even from normally timid Republicans who don't speak out against the president, including Lindsey um, Graham and others. And uh, there seems to be a movement afoot, which is kind of a, I think, kind of fabrication of a fig leaf um, uh, to create sanctions um, that might be used in the event that the Turks do something particularly Heinous. Now, having said that, the Turks are going to do what the Turks are going to do. This seems kind of impotent in advance, and 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 frankly, they've already done some things that are pretty heinous. But do you think that there, in 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 the Trump era, do you think there are forces that can, you know, sort of reverse the U.S. position or change it measurably? Well, David, that moment to do sanctions was when the president was on the phone with President Erdogan, right? It was to say, if you go do this, here's what's going to happen to your economy and lay the prices out. And here's what's going to potentially happen to your alliance with the United States and your alliance with NATO. If you do the sanctions now, which I agree are coming because the president's going to have to exceed and that seems to be bipartisan, it's going to be like that moment in 2017 when Congress passed sanctions uh, against Russia and the president didn't have the votes to sustain a veto, um, the question will then come, sanctions toward what end? What are you trying to accomplish? So one possibility is, yeah, limit the damage. The second possibility is that you could demand a ceasefire for those sanctions. Third possibility is that you could demand that the Syrian, uh, that the Turkish troops withdraw behind, um, back behind the, you know, the Turkish border. Um, hard to imagine somebody like uh, President Erdogan at this point uh, backing off that much. Um, the only other piece of leverage we have out there, and the question is leverage for whom, the Turks or for us, is the fact that there are 50 American nuclear weapons still um, sitting at Insulik Air Base, and I write about this some in the, uh, in the news analysis. Uh, one U.S. official said to me, you know, at this point, they are almost hostage, those weapons, to uh, President Erdogan. 
because if you, the U.S. picked them up and lifted them out, it would sort of mark the end of the alliance. Uh, on the other hand, the other way to look at it is that the U.S., if it did pick them up, would basically be saying, you're no longer getting the full benefits of NATO protection. Well, it's an, it's, an, it's an interesting question. A lot of people have talked about it. I saw Richard Haas made a comment suggesting that the time was come to uh, rethink Turkey's uh, participation in the alliance and to get the nuclear weapons out of there. I have a column in the Daily Beast right now in which I, I talk about the same thing. Um, Mark, you were the commander of the U.S. Army in Europe. You've, de you've, you've dealt with NATO on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the Turks have been drifting away, including, you know, over the summer, um, buying uh, uh, Russian uh, de defensive missiles, um, uh, not, uh, you know, hewing close to our position on anything. At, at the best, you could describe them as a difficult ally. Um, have we passed the sell-by date on our alliance with Turkey? I, I think that's certainly something that can be brought into question, and I, I believe they will do that in Brussels. Uh, I'd comment, though, David, that this has been ongoing for more than just recently. Uh, when the coup attempt uh, or the, the alleged coup attempt occurred back a few years ago in Turkey, uh, all the, the military folks that I used to work with who were pretty solid soldiers and airmen uh, in the Turkish military, uh, they, they had some issues with the way their government was leaning. After that coup, as you remember, hundreds of military leaders were imprisoned and done away with. So I think you've seen over the last several years, if not decades, uh, a kind of contrariness within Turkey that, that is somewhat dismissive of the, the values uh, attributed to NATO writ large. I'm going to go back, though, if I can, David, because your commentary about the sanctions I think from a military perspective, is in, it's important to, to discuss for just a moment. Uh, when, we first, when you first asked me the question, uh, I used the term operational momentum. Uh, in all the conversations about sanctions, those are going to take weeks or months to put in place. And even the threat of them are not going to carry the kind of weight, um, as David said, should have been carried when Trump had his initial conversation with Erdogan. Uh, certainly, Sanctions won't affect the ground that's already been gained by the Turkish military. They won't counter all the reported tr atrocities that have already occurred, and there have been many, by a force under the control of a NATO partner, uh, a NATO ally that's, that's allowed these kinds of atrocities to take place in part of their military operations. I, I, sh I should just interject in there. Not just a NATO partner has allowed atrocities to take place. A NATO partner that has directed shelling at U.S. positions. Right. Right. I mean, that, which is kind of extraordinary, right? Well, and their excuses for that were were weak at best. Uh, and then I'm also going to talk about that diminishment of trust in the United States, which they've really thumbed their nose at on the world stage, cannot be countered. And then finally, the last thing is we have partners that are already turning toward our geostrategic foe, Russia, asking them for help. 
uh, I, you know, we're all victims of our experiences. And for two years in northern Iraq, I dealt with the Kurdish regional government and had great experiences of doing so. One of the things you left out in defining the litany of things where the, the Kurds have already lost trust in the world to help them was the fact that after Desert Storm, we also turned our backs on the Kurds when we allowed Saddam Hussein to keep most of his weapons. And every time I dealt with either Nershavan Barzani or Marsoud Barzani, they would remind me, kiddingly, of course, that the Americans are not to be trusted. And in one personal conversation with, with Nershavan Barzani, he mentioned that it was always good to deal with American military because we did things for the right reasons, but he was always suspect when he was visited by American politicians. And, and having sat in some of those engagements with the Kurdish regional government, I can understand why. Uh, people, uh, our government goes to the Kurdish region, talks to the Kurds. They don't understand the differences in the various political parties within the Kurdish region. They don't understand the different approaches the Kurds will take. So all of that contributes, first of all, in a lack of trust by them to us, but it also contributes to some of these misunderstandings that we are certainly having. I, I don't think this particular one uh, is recoverable. This one's going to be tough to turn around uh, because it was uh, it resulted in a lot of deaths immediately. You know, um, Steve, as we as we look forward to, at this, we you know it's going to play out over over several weeks or months. Uh, uh, the consequences could be uh, quite quite destabilizing, but it's going to occur in the context of a political campaign in the United States. Um, I, you know, I think it's fair to say that U.S. policy in the Middle East has resulted in a litany of of fiascos. The question is, is there a prescription that makes more sense? Um, and I think a lot of the Democratic candidates are going to be put in a position where they agree with the general principle that you described, which is U.S. US ought to draw down its forces and not be involved in, in, in a lot of the, the regional issues uh, in the Middle East. But that always requires some qualification. How do we ensure things are stable? How do we ensure the troops that are left behind are safe? Uh, and what's our strategy? And I, you know, I haven't heard anybody have a strategy since Bush had a bad one. So, what do you? If I had to predict, I think most of the Democratic candidates are going to stick with simply indicting Trump for having screwed things up even worse, and not try to offer much of a positive vision. Because trying to put one together, I think, is hard work, and almost any proposal you make is going to be easy to attack. Um, I do think we're seeing right the, here the the failure again of the sort of Trumpian transactional approach where you take every relationship on its own terms and never think about how the pieces fit together, never think about how what you do with respect to one problem is going to affect how other things uh, occur. And just in response to what Mark and David have already said, I mean, here we have this sort of the trifecta of bad policy. He may have managed this uh, in a way to imperil the Kurds, to alarm our allies, and ultimately to make the relationship with Turkey even worse. Right. And it's a it's an impressive achievement to sort of do all of those <laughs> things simultaneously. Don't 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 forget empowering our enemies, that, which right. is an important. Yeah. Yeah, that would make it the quadfecta, uh, quad I guess. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, that's 
that's, I think, largely a consequence of Trump's disinterest in any kind of systematic process. So even if he had said to his people a year ago, and he certainly signaled that this is where he wanted to go, look, I want to get us out of northern Syria. I want you to come up with a diplomatic and military strategy that allows us to do that in a careful, systematic, sustainable way with the least damage possible. If he had done that, it would have been hard, but you might have imagined this being achieved in a, a relatively straightforward way. I think it would have involved cooperating with Russia, cooperating with Turkey, cooperating with Assad, and to some degree cooperating uh, with Iran, but I think it would have been uh, at least achievable. Of course, he hasn't done that. What he did is a week ago changed his mind and without any prior planning or process uh, has simply unloosed, uh, unleashed a certain amount of chaos there. One final point here is there's a, another further contradiction in their whole approach. This is, again, why the Democratic candidates are probably going to stay away from this. Um, on the one hand, he says, I want us out of Syria, where we didn't have much of a presence. Uh, at, at the same time, I want to impose maximum pressure on Iran and send more troops to Saudi Arabia. These two objectives are fundamentally at odds with one another. The more pressure you put on Iran, the more Iran will want to interfere in other parts of the Middle East, including in Syria as well. So these two things are, again, fundamentally at odds with one another, which suggests that Trump's transactional approach, as opposed to a more coherent strategic approach, uh, is not the way to go. David, can I just jump in on briefly on that, that point? Because the, the Saudi announcement was pretty remarkable. And we spent a lot of time at the State Department on Friday trying to get uh, officials who were briefing us to explain why it is endless war to pull peacekeepers, endless war justifies uh, pulling peacekeepers off of the border, but doesn't apply when you're putting them into uh, Saudi Arabia. Because in both places, they're essentially acting as a deterrent force. And when the question got asked for the third time, since there was no answer, uh, the State Department spokeswoman pulled our briefer uh, down from the podium so that uh, he wouldn't have to suffer through trying to come up with yet another way to try to go explain the inexplicable. Well, yeah, and I would add that, that the troops aren't being pulled out of the region. The troops were moved south, right? And to the extent to which this situation um, gets worse, uh, pulling them out altogether is going to be a, 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 you know, raise a, a whole set of other questions. But Joyce, you know, one of the things that strikes me as kind of interesting about this is, you know, clearly Trump unbriefed, um, set things in motion, or at least gave the green light to set things in motion with his conversation with Erdogan um, uh, and, and showed remarkable bad judgment, a lack of leadership in that regard. The Europeans have responded, trying to stop it. Um, the Europeans, uh, there, there's discussions among the Europeans about stopping uh, weapon sales to Turkey. Uh, Angela Merkel has called upon Erdogan to reverse what he's done. Um, and uh, I might add that this is all in the context of U.S. president also saying, well, you know, ISIS will leave the prisons, but they'll go back to Europe. So there's nothing to worry about. Um, but, you know, another place where ISIS is going to have its impact felt is in the Middle East. And the response from other U.S. allies in the Middle East has been kind of crickets. It's been kind of nothing. Uh, you know, the, the, the Israelis said something about, you know, they feel bad for the Kurds, but aren't doing anything that we're aware of to help them. 
uh, and the Gulf allies have essentially been silent on this. Um, and 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 I, you know, I, I, you know, it, given the implications for the region, strengthening Iran, strengthening ISIS, etc., you would think there would be more, uh, de- you know, demonstration of their point of view. So I was just wondering what you think of the re- the response uh, or lack of response from from Middle Eastern governments. I mean, for Middle Eastern governments, for Gulf allies, you just have to look who's visiting uh, Saudi uh, and the UAE this week. And that's, uh, you know, part of the answer. Uh, the Russian president is in, in, in Saudi, the first visit uh, since uh, 12 years. Uh, so maybe they're looking at, at Russia to, uh, to help them uh, uh, deliver uh, their interests in, in Syria. Uh, when you talk also about, uh, when you talk to uh, Middle Eastern uh, diplomats, uh, they look at this as a lose-lose uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, game here because they're not fans of, uh, of Turkey or the Turkish government and its incursion into Syria. At the same time, they have a lot of reservations about Assad and Iran and uh, and uh, what he's done uh, uh, in the war. Uh, so in that sense, they I, I doubt you'll hear uh, much more uh, from uh, from the Middle Eastern uh, governments. We've seen that only Qatar uh, has come out in support uh, of Turkey. Uh, what you could see uh, playing out is what we heard from the Arab League uh, in their meeting uh, on Saturday, that Iraq uh, could put uh, a request forward to uh, to reaccept uh, Assad's membership in the uh, in the Arab League, uh, so in a sense, this this is more good news uh, for Assad. But in uh, on Syria, more generally, I mean, we have to remember, uh, David, that this was never a strategic, uh, uh, you know, location for the U.S. government or a strategic uh, uh, place of interest. Uh, and except for ISIS, except for fighting ISIS, the U.S. had never had any military troops in Syria before 2014. Uh, so when we we talk about the Democrats and what may happen, uh, it's just highly unlikely for any of this to be uh, reversed. Uh, but as many of uh, you know, our colleagues on this call said, it's, uh, it's the way the mechanism was done, the little consultations with your partners uh, on the ground and the, and the way it's, it's unfolding in the country. Well, Mark, you have a lot of experience in the region. And the 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 a likely consequence of this, um, for reasons that have been stated by everybody here, is strengthening of ISIS, a strengthening of Assad, a strengthening of Russian influence, a strengthening of Iranian influence, and regardless of what strategy the U.S. has or doesn't have, none of those things are in the interests of the United States. No, not so, at all. And, yeah. and 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 so it it. You know, it seems like this is a serious setback um, uh, for the U.S. with regard to goals that it had, rolling back ISIS, rolling back Assad, stabilizing the region, uh, containing Iranian uh, ambitions in the region. Um, is, do, do you think it's a reset? Do you think we're, you know, this this marks may mark the beginning of a new phase in this part of the world? Well, I, I think I go back to what Stephen said before, and that when you don't have a strategy as a first one uh, in the first place, you can't say you now have a failed strategy. 
But I'd add to all those uh, countries you said have been strengthened and those you mentioned have been weakened with the fact that I believe there's going to be an in, a massively increased, if it can get worse than it already has uh, over the last several years, refugee crisis. Uh, and that's going to affect Europe. You're also going to see as, as the Europeans across the board either take their weapons away from Turkey, quit selling weapons to Turkey or uh, put other sanctions on. That's going to just cause more chaos and dysfunction within NATO headquarters. So you're not only going to have an effect on the Middle East as a region, I think you're also going to see second and third order effects uh, because of increased refugees and, and the and the chaos within the NATO alliance as a result of all of this. What is NATO going to do? And, you know, the thing that concerns me, uh, looking ahead a few days, and it may be just a few days, what happens if Russian soldiers backing Assad come in contact with Turkish soldiers coming in from the north? Uh, would Turkey then potentially uh, and ridiculously claim Article 5 protections and ask NATO for help in defeating the Russians in in securing their borders? I don't know. Sillier things have happened in the last week. But I think you're going to see a disruption in American foreign policy for whoever is going to be the next president. Not only are they going to have to have an unbelievable character and a sense of strong values, they are going to have to unwrap the disaster that has occurred uh, in several continents, but this one especially. This, this particular incident uh, of all the things that have We've called a crisis in the last several months and two years. This one, to me, is really undercutting uh, our our reputation and our potential capability to lead in the area. And it's going to be devastating in the short term and the long term. Uh, David, well, can I just, um, on, on one point that uh, Mark made, uh, I think the Russians said today that they are in contact with Turkish officials so that such military clash does not happen in Syria. So again, you see Russia in contact with everyone geopolitically mm -hmm. yeah. way ahead of uh, of the U.S. in this game. Well, that's what I was actually going to get to to Steve with a question on, and that is, um, as as you say, you know, Trump had a lousy foreign policy before. He's during impeachment. He's going to have a lousy foreign policy. Uh, after uh, impeachment uh, and in the campaign, he's going to have a lousy foreign policy. America is going to flounder around uh, with a, a dysfunctional U.S. government. On, and, you know, we can save this for another day and another discussion. But I would say the most dysfunctional policy apparatus that the United States has ever seen. Um, and, and that's saying something. But, but the Europeans have urgency here for the reasons Mark said. Refugees, the flow of ISIS back into Europe, and the lack of U.S. leadership. Uh, and they're going to have to step up. The Russians are seeking this as an opportunity to step up. Do you see a kind of geopolitical reset? Is this going to be more um, sort of, you know, our 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 allies and our adversaries filling the Trump-sized void in, in global policy? Uh, yeah, there may be a little of that, although let me give a slightly more optimistic view of what might happen in the region. I'm not saying it will happen, but I think it's at least a possibility. Uh, and that's that as a consequence of all of this, uh, again, uh, happening, um, that over time, Assad will, in fact, uh, re 
consolidate his authority in all of Syria, which I think is eventually going to happen anyway. Um, um, and that uh, this commitment has been costly for Iran. Uh, it's been costly for Russia. And Syria would probably light them out uh, or at least substantially reduced over time. So we could wake up in a, several years and discover that the Iranian presence in Syria has been gradually reduced, that the Russian involvement has uh, largely gone away. They'll still be supporting him, of course, uh, diplomatically, but they won't be doing anything militarily because there won't be anything to do uh, militarily. And Syria will go back to being a sort of semi-pariah state uh, as, it was, uh, as it was before. Um, if, in fact, this does lead some of our allies in Europe to step up a bit more, that would not be a bad thing. That's something that uh, every president, I think, has wanted, uh, including this one. Uh, other presidents have usually gone about it in, I think, somewhat uh, more effective ways and left less broken crockery uh, in the process. I think the, the one thing that worries me about the impeachment process and what effect it may have on Trump is that uh, it's going to simply accelerate the capriciousness that we've seen over the last uh, two weeks or so uh, as people begin to leave his administration and uh, some of the sensible voices have left. Uh, there's fewer constraints on what uh, on Trump's impulses. And I think that undermines trust in the United States more than anything else. Uh, every country, uh, uh, even groups like the Kurds, understand that states are going to change their policies as conditions evolve in the world. That's the nature of foreign policy. But you don't like the idea that states will do that every 24 hours or that a president can uh, have one phone call and suddenly, without much warning, uh, shift policy and who knows, might shift it back again, uh, as Trump has done repeatedly. And it's not so much a loss of credibility, it's just a loss of any sense of predictability. Uh, again, the sense of capriciousness that I think has uh, alarmed both, uh, certainly uh, people in the United States, but also a lot of our partners around the world. David, can I um, add on to something there that uh, Steve made? I think he makes a very good point about predictability and, and reliability. But I think there's something deeper that's happened here which is that you know a year and a half ago on these broadcasts, we used to talk about who were the adults in the room, right? And mm -hmm. it was when H.R. McMaster was there, Rex Tillerson, despite his disastrous time as Secretary of State, people fundamentally thought that he wasn't of wild judgment. Um, John Bolton, you knew exactly where he stood, even if you wildly disagreed with it. And I think Bolton himself uh, would have... Um, probably tried to stand in the way of this. But now the president's surrounded with a team that's notable chiefly for its inexperience, except for Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, who has really gotten himself wrapped into the Ukraine stuff. And that is, you have a secretary of defense and a new national security advisor, neither of whom is going to stand up to President Trump and say, let me lay out for you the calamity that will unfold if you go uh, do what it is you're doing here. And uh, so there was nobody who sort of threw their body in the way of that phone call. That phone call probably never should have happened. Probably. <laughs> you're being, yeah, just, you're being just, very gentle. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm only being gentle, David, because it, Erdogan brilliantly brought this thing up at the end of the conversation on a Sunday when he knew he could route around everybody else. And of course, the president went right for it because it fits with something the president has frequently said. I mean, Mattis 
the Mattis resignation was all about this issue in December. It's just we just came back for the second episode. Okay. Well, we I, I started when I was t- talking to David about talking about this thing called a Q head at the New York Times, and you know, sort of an- analysis on the front page. We're at the back end of 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 this program. We've only got a, a couple of minutes left to go. What I'd like to do is I'd like to go to each of you, and I'll start with Joyce, and we'll go around the group. Um, and 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 I'd like you to in in a minute give give us your sense of where we go from here. Make some predictions about what happens next. You don't have to make them all, but I just would like to help you know our listeners get a sense of you know what what kind of developments we can expect on the near or medium term horizon. But just you know in a in a nutshell, Joyce. Uh, well, I don't think I'm as optimistic as, as Steve. I mean, I've learned not to be optimistic at anything, uh, Middle East. But uh, on Syria in particular, uh, I think uh, even the Europeans are putting pressure for Turkey to stop uh, its incursion. That's unlikely uh, to happen uh, anytime soon. I think we, we should expect fighting uh, to, to continue. Uh, Assad may uh, be a little bit uh, rehabilitated. Uh, in Syria, and uh, I'm not sure if uh, Iran or Hezbollah or other proxies uh, will be leaving anytime soon or if the war will end anytime soon. So just uh, more of the same, uh, but uh, with Assad gaining uh, strength internally. Mark. Yeah, uh, the biggest thing that I'd be concerned with, David, is the military adjustments to what is happening. Uh, what kind of how, how do you make chicken salad out of all this that's been occurring? And as a new chairman, let's add him to the mix of new people in, in the national security realm. As new chairman General Milley uh, takes charge and he's only been there a few weeks, how does he make military adjustments and influence the president in some way so that something like this doesn't happen again? And how do we mitigate what has already occurred? to find ways to come out of it in the best possible ways using the military element of national power. In the long term, I would guess that there's probably some planners on the joint staff thinking, what, what, what do we do in 2020 with a potential of a new president? How do we fix all the things that have been occurring to get uh, uh, that military arm back on a solid sheet of ground so it's, it's not the first action that we always take? And it's also not the first thing that's destroyed when we do something like this. Thanks. Steve. Uh, I've had time to come up with five predictions. So, uh, one, uh, Turkey will not stop because they see this as a a vital security concern of theirs, rightly or wrongly. Uh, Second, yes, Assad will continue to consolidate his position in Syria. Uh, In the Middle East, uh, and from our perspective, the action will shift back towards the Gulf and Iran, which is a far more important and, in some respects, worrisome set of concerns. And then back here at home, Trump is going to be increasingly distracted by the impeachment process, which is probably a good thing. Uh, And then lastly, uh, the Democrats will use this whole incident to reinforce the image of incompetence that he richly deserves. uh, And that's probably a good thing, too. Okay, five things. Uh, David, can you do six? Well, (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, I can't do six because you never want to you never want to follow my friends, Steve Walt. You know, it used to be it used to be that Harvard professors just did things in groups of three. 
but he's now upping it to do groups of five, right? Um, so uh, a couple of things here. First, uh, I agree uh, Erdogan's not going to stop. Second, I think the United States will impose sanctions, and they won't make that big a difference. I think the third thing that's going to happen here is that pressure will grow on the U.S. Uh, to debate what the NATO status should be for um, Turkey, and then in the end, Turkey will remain a member. There's actually no way to um, uh, get people out under the NATO charter, uh, but they will be a member in name only. They will basically be buying their equipment from the Russians, as they were with the uh, with the S-400, and uh, they will be uh, periodically threatening to shell American positions. Uh, I think the last thing that's going to happen here is that the Iranians... Um, will discover that they've gotten a freebie from, of all people, uh, Donald Trump, and that they will exploit that position in Syria uh, to the max, as will the Russians. And uh, that that will reduce our leverage considerably as we deal with Iran on more serious topics. Okay, thank you. Well, I think that provides us with a, a, a very useful forward-going perspective. I. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful that we've been able to pull together um, uh, on short notice such a distinguished group of people to discuss this uh, unfolding catastrophe. And I want to thank Joyce, and I want to thank Mark, I want to thank Steve, I want to thank David, uh, and I want to encourage all of you to go and follow what they've been writing and saying, See, watch Mark on CNN, um, and uh, uh, because they are important voices in this. and. Uh, their perspectives uh, will shape the national debate on this. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you want more of what we're doing on this and saying, and uh, we've got some upcoming one-on-ones uh, -on -ones this week with members of Congress uh, talking about this and impeachment, uh, and of course our usual Thursday show, which is focusing more on the impeachment saga, uh, you know, go to the dsrnetwork.com, uh, uh, look at our new offerings, follow them, uh, sign up, become a member. Uh, support what we're doing as we expand. Uh, we've noticed the uh, viewership, listenership has gone up a lot in the course of the past couple of months as these uh, crises have worsened. And I think that's because we've got great people providing in-depth perspectives. Uh, so come back and join us again soon. Uh, thanks to everybody. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.